0: So, one of the great joys for me at Christmas is I love kids' Christmas stories. My top three favorite are number one, uh, Mister Willoughby's Christmas Tree. Anybody? I know it's obscure. Anybody read okay, one? I, 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 I love that book. My mom read it to us when we were kids, and then we read it to our kids uh, when our kids were little. And I love that story so much that when I was in college, I took a public speaking class and we had to memorize um, a body of, of work that was a certain length and Mr. Willoughby's was the right length. So I memorized it for my final project, right? Because I love it that much. Mr. Willoughby's Christmas tree came by special delivery, full and fresh and glistening green. It was the biggest tree he'd ever seen. Wonderful, splendid, he cried. Won't you bring it right on inside? I think it might look best this year, right in the parlor corner here. But when the tree stood in its place, Mr. Willoughby made a horrible face. The tree hit the ceiling and bent like a bow. Oh, good heavens, he cried, something must go. And if you want the rest, get the book. It's really good. My second favorite is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Anybody? I love that. And then, of course, classic. Charles Dickens A Christmas Carol which you've right everybody if you haven't maybe this is the wrong church for you I don't know I mean everybody's seen A Christmas Carol right or or read the book uh, and it's an interesting story because it's the only it's the only Christmas tale that I know of that includes ghosts right now ghosts that's usually a halloween thing but Charles Dickens chooses to use ghosts as his main characters in the story but we forget that in the Victorian age, telling ghost stories was actually a common thing at Christmas. That famous song, "It's the most wonderful time of year," you know what I'm talking about. You know that song. There's a line that says, "And we'll tell scary ghost stories." You ever wonder why that line is in that song? Well, it's because in the Victorian times, they would tell ghost stories at Christmas because you know it's winter is dark and. By candlelight, maybe too much rum punch, the ghost stories start kind of flowing. We just kind of, as humans, we put things together. And there there are some things that we put together in which I say, like, who was the first person to think about that? Why would someone do that? Like, for instance, who who was the first person that decided that it was okay to put pineapple on pizza? Like... As a Sicilian, I'm offended, right? My wife loves it, but I mean, there's just things that don't go together. Right? Or, or like, who was the who was the first person that saw a horse in the wild and said, "One day I'm going to ride that"? Or, or, or if, if you're a coffee lover, there's a type of coffee called Luwak. If you don't know what Luwak is, Google it. It's very expensive. uh, Raw luwak is $600 a pound. It's very expensive. But when you discover how it's created, if you don't know, you can look online. Like, who was the first person that said, I think I'm going to try that? Our current celebration of Christmas, as we know it in the present, is a combination of things. I mean, first, it's, of course, the the biblical story of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in which Mary and Joseph get this message from the angel. But our current practice of Christmas is also deeply influenced by ancient Rome and the celebration of the winter solstice. And the third influence of our, what we call, present-day Christmas is the creative commercialization of the 1800s. See, there are just some historical developments that make Christmas what it is today. Now, over the last couple of weekends, we've looked at Christmas past. We've opened the story of Luke. We looked at Mary and Joseph and the angels and the wise men. And in the classic Christmas story, what we know as Christians make the essence of what Christmas is. Now, we don't know, honestly, for certain when Jesus was actually born. But it was most likely not December 25th. Actually, most historians and theologians believe it was more close to the spring. Uh, The Armenian church celebrates Christmas on January 6th. And we also know that the first century Christians, those first followers of Christ, didn't celebrate Jesus' birth at all. Jesus, in his last moments with his disciples, asked them to remember his death, but he never asked them to remember his birth, and so they didn't. So how then... Did we get here? Well, I think it begins with the Roman Emperor Constantine and the celebration of the winter solstice. The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. And in Roman times, there was a festival called Saturnalia, which was celebrated at the winter solstice in which people exchanged gifts, feasted and celebrated the birthday of the deity Mithra, the god of loyalty And light. But when Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, he made the Christian religion the official religion of the Roman Empire. Constantine wanted to start to remove some of those pagan celebrations and practices. And so he made a decision to insert the celebration of the birth of Christ to coincide with the winter solstice and this pagan holiday so that he could weaken the pagan establishment and bring in and usher in Christianity into the Roman world. When you move into the medieval period, that holiday is also combined with this Germanic festival of Yule in which Yule logs were burned uh, as a form of cleansing and greenery was hung in homes to brighten up the dark winter nights. And by the time we come to the 19th century, things have shifted drastically, and as a result, Christmas had become a purely religious day, a day of worship. But when things started to get commercialized, the Puritans started to revolt in the 1600s and they made Christmas a day of penance and some Puritans went as far as to create a campaign called No Christmas with the goal of abolishing Christmas completely. Then in 1670, the state of Massachusetts made the celebration of Christmas illegal, punishable by a fine. But then, something happened in the year 1870. See, it's in 1870 that we saw the emergence of the department store. And in 1876, Macy's was the first department store to create Christmas displays in their windows and in their stores. In 1867, Macy's did something unheard of On Christmas Eve, they stayed open until midnight to accommodate all those last-minute Christmas shoppers. So when you combine those things, the biblical story of the birth of Jesus, Constantine and the winter solstice, and the creative commercialization of the 1800s, what you get is Christmas in the present. Now, much like the ghost of Christmas present in A Christmas Carol, who appeared to Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm not necessarily going to tell you what you want to hear today. Rather, I'm just going to say what is, because I am a bit of a realist. For the next few moments, I hope that together we meet the Jesus of Christmas on his terms and not our own. Now listen, I'm not going to be a doggy downer. It's not all bad. I like Christmas, like, I'm not a bah humbug. I like Christmas trees. I like getting Christmas gifts. And there's plenty of time for you to shop for me still. We've got two weeks. I like Christmas cookies. I like a well-decorated tree. I love it all. I'm some, there are some things that are frustrating. Like, the thing that frustrates me the most is putting lights on my house. And I complain about it every year. My complaint has made its way into every Christmas sermon I've ever given and I've really tried like I have really tried to serve my family with with the Christmas lights. 4 years ago I put them on my house and we had a bunch of shorts and that didn't work out. So then the next year I bought those big reindeer, you know, th- that light up and uh, and they look co- well they look kind of cool, but mine the antlers kept falling off, the legs fell off, they'd blow over. It's frustrating. So last year I paid someone. It was a disaster. I got totally ripped off. And when the guy was done, my house it looked more like Halloween than Christmas. So frustrated. So this year, my wife and I said, we're going to do this together. And we had a day about four or five weeks ago. Remember it was like 70 degrees outside. We got all of our lights on our bushes and it actually looked good. The timers worked. Everything was great and then my dog ate them. He chewed through all the strings of lights. I have strings of lights all over my front yard, and I just said, I give up. Just going to look at the neighbors from now on. Can't take it anymore. And so I see the lights over my yard, and I just, I'm like, kind of like Charlie Brown in 1965 when Charlie Brown's Christmas aired, and Charlie Brown was given the role of the director of the Christmas pageant and he gets frustrated with the commercialization of Christmas and he throws his script on the floor and screams out, can anybody tell me the true meaning of Christmas? And the lights go low and Linus walks in, the spotlight shines. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you the true meaning of Christmas. And then Linus goes on to quote the gospel of Luke. See, the true meaning of Christmas can be told in one word. It's a very deep, very simple, but very theological word. It's the word incarnation. The word incarnation means in the flesh, it means that God came to be with us, born in the most obscure of circumstances, a manger in the dirt. It's an event that had been prophesied about for thousands of years. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophetic words that point to the coming of the Messiah. The the most known of these ancient prophecies is from Isaiah. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, 12 and 13, we read, But but Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David." Is it not enough to try the patience of humans will? Will you try the patience of my gods also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now this prophecy from Isaiah happens in the year 739 BC. So 739 years before Christ is born. And the events happening in Isaiah chapters 7 and 8 are actual historical events in which the king of Israel and the king of Syria, they attack the king of Judah. His name was Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked king. He did not follow in the ways of his father David, but he let the people of Judah worship pagan deities, and Ahaz himself even sacrificed his firstborn son to a pagan god. And therefore, as a punishment for his sins, we read in the Old Testament that God was going to bring the Syrians and the Israelites to attack Judah. But Ahaz, Ahaz was wicked and he saw a way out. And so he made he made a treaty with the king of Assyria by giving gold and silver from the Lord's temple as a way to buy kind of his protection and freedom. And so Isaiah chapter 7 is actually a warning. And the warning is that there are so many corrupt and wicked rulers drunk with power in the line of Israel and the Israelites that that in the future God is going to bring a new ruler uh, the name of this promised ruler will be Emmanuel God with us and Emmanuel will be a bringer of hope to his people and this this child that will be born of a virgin will be the visible physical and present representation of God for his people. And so over 700 years later, Emmanuel arrives in a barn. Emmanuel then lives for 30 years in obscurity, working in his father's carpentry shop. And then when the time is right, he bursts onto the scene working miracles speaking a message that was that was blowing the minds of people, so much so that they said, we've never heard someone teach like this before. There's an event that happens in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. It's a question that Jesus asks that I, I believe is the question of Christmas. Not only the question of Christmas, but the question of Christianity. And while we don't include Matthew in the Christmas story. The the question Jesus asks is just as relevant at Christmas as it was when Jesus asked it. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, In this story, Jesus is with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. In Israel, it's located uh, in the upper right-hand corner on the map of Israel. Uh, If you're traveling with me in November uh, to the Holy Land, we're going to visit Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was originally known as Panaeus because in that region they worshipped the god Pan. Pan. In the city, the time of Jesus had been recently renamed by Philip the Tetrarch in honor of himself and Augustus Caesar, so it had become known as Caesarea Philippi. So it's in the midst of that hyper-religious setting in which Jesus asks two questions, questions that will shake the foundations of religion. Question number one, who do other people say that I am? What are the rumors What's whispered in quiet corners? Who do people say that I am? Well, Jesus was wildly popular by this time and so they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Some say you're Elijah the prophet, maybe Jeremiah. Okay, that's, that's fine. But who do you say I am? Peter, who, who am I to you? There are lots of answers to that question. There were lots of answers to that question on the very first Christmas. If you were to ask that question to Mary and Joseph, they would say, well, Jesus is our son. The shepherds who were there on the day Jesus was born would say, well, he is clearly the Messiah. There was an angelic visitation. We know exactly who he is. The magi who saw the star rise, they would say, well, he's some kind of king for certain. Herod, Herod simply saw Jesus as a threat. And modern people today, well, some say he's a good man, a good teacher. Others say he's distant, judgmental, exclusive, a myth, inaccessible, not real. During Advent, I hear the question of Jesus, who do you say that I am? We have this, practice on our staff, we call it having a 10% conversation. And what that means is whenever you have to have a hard talk with somebody, which we all have hard conversations, we usually will be mostly honest because we don't want to offend or maybe we don't like confrontation. And in that conversation, we tend to hold back 10 to 20% of what we really think or feel because we don't want to go there or hurt someone else's feelings. So whenever we have to have a conversation that's going to be difficult, but we really need to lean in because it's usually in that 10% that the real work actually happens. We may say to each other, Hey, can I have a 10% conversation with you? Meaning I want to be lovingly honest with you. I think in this moment, Jesus is having a 10% conversation with his disciples. Guys, you've been traveling with me. You've seen me work miracles. You've heard my teaching, but, but who do you say I am? Not what, not what the crowds are saying, not what culture is saying, not what people are. Who do you say who I am? And what do you really think? And Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. In contrast to all the lifeless gods in Caesarea Philippi, you are the living one. That was a risky question and an even more risky answer because in Caesarea Philippi, the only Messiah was Caesar. Caesar declared himself a god, a rescuer, Messiah. Caesar declared himself the son of God. So for anyone else to declare themselves to be the son of God and for you to admit that someone else might be the son of God... Well, that was dangerous. So now at Christmas, I think you and I are invited into that same 10% conversation that Jesus had with his disciples all those years ago. See, how we answer that question, not just with the words of our mouth, but with the evidence of our life, determines what we really believe about Christmas. Because, see, Christmas is a religion of being, but it's also a religion of doing. As a follower of Christ, my whole being rests in him, in his grace. I say Jesus is Lord, he is the Messiah. But it doesn't stop there, because the result of that belief is a transformed life. Our faith is not just a dusty old story, it's a living one. It's the living one that has some expectations, Over and over and over, we're challenged in the Bible to be transformed, to be changed. When I live a life filled with God's spirit, the evidence is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So when Peter said, you are the Messiah, it wasn't just a declaration of word, it was a declaration of deed. Jesus then in turn looked at Peter and said, Now I'm going to tell you who you are. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Peter, here's who you are. You are blessed by God. You are a leader in my church, in this new movement I've come to establish. I trust you, Peter. Christmas tells you who you are. Christmas tells you that you are the beloved of God. Christmas tells us that you were worth it. You were worth enough for the Son of God to leave the hallways of heaven and come to earth in the weakest form possible, a baby born in the dirtiest place known, a barn. Christmas tells us you're the beloved of God. So as we stand now together in Christmas present, I mean, what is it for us? I know many of us understand the balance, right? We understand the balance of the celebration because we're humans, we like to celebrate. I love it too, I do. But I also know that you can take all of it away and I still have the story of the birth of the Messiah, the one who I've staked my whole life on, the one that cared enough for humanity that he would come to earth to identify with me as a human. Others of us, honestly, we're probably too distracted to lean into that. We get so frazzled by the parties that we don't want to go to but we have to because we work there. (laughs) Or those awkward visits with family members and trying to find the perfect gift that nobody needs that will probably end up in the basement anyway by this time next year. And others of us, well, others of us, it's hard to enter into the story of Christ because Christmas is yet another reminder of what we do not have. It is a reminder of who's no longer with us. It is a reminder of a year we'd rather forget. So to live in the balance of it all, maybe there are some things that we can do. I've I've found it a great practice to each week just spend some time reminding myself of what this is all about. And the way that I do that is I just, I listen to that old Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I'm going to ask AJ to come back. uh, And so just for a moment, we're going to do this together. Um, So wherever you find yourself in the Christmas season, let's just take a moment. Let's take a moment of quiet and remind ourselves what this story is all about.
1: shall come to me. Dark shadows curve to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Amen.
0: Well, is the hope and the expectation of Advent Jesus is born and now the incarnation of Christ is extended to the world through you and through me the word Christian literally means little Christ it means that we become like him for the world so how do we do that maybe, maybe this Christmas The way that we incarnate Christ is more a matter of a lot of simple things than one big thing. Maybe for some of us, it's this holiday season that you are going to extend unexplainable grace to that annoying family member you know is going to be there this year, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. Or maybe this Christmas season, before you open the gifts and dive into Christmas dinner, you open up the Gospel of Luke and read the story, entering into it as a family. Or maybe you know of a family in need, or someone who's alone, and what Advent means this year is you invite them into your family. So we pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This Christmas we say that you... Jesus are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In our prayer, my hope, our desire, is that we would be people that live as little Christs. That we would not only speak the words of what we believe, but that we would live it in the way that we shape our actions and our thoughts and our words and our deeds and the way we interact with the world around us. Oh come, oh come. Emmanuel. Amen.